What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and reported. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of St. Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's not, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. Right? And I, that's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Like, All right, well, welcome to another episode of Death Rose Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. I'm yeah, and today we're going to be talking about the case of Kevin Cooper, who uh, you kind of see around and communicate with on a regular basis uh, because he's on death row with you. And this case is really interesting. Our last episode was uh, a guy named Clarence Ray Allen who was executed, and he is a strong suspect in a in a case that this guy, Kevin Cooper, has been convicted and, and sentenced to death for. And so we're going to kind of explore uh, that whole uh, intersecting thing. Um, but first, we have a few listener questions. Uh, if we have any new listeners, you are you're currently on death row. You're in a small cell, and uh, that's where we're talking to you from. Uh, so Kate... From Bellingham, Washington, sent in a DM on my Instagram. By the way, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and Patreon, also Death Row Diaries, where you can get exclusive content and merchandise. Anyway, Katie from Bellingham wants to know uh, what is the most popular sport among. Uh, death row inmates you guys have tvs in your cells and that made me wonder you know are violent sports like ufc and and boxing maybe especially popular or is it does it kind of mirror just the rest of society yeah it it kind of changes from um season to season of course during football season nfl's king uh nba is very popular um but there's been a shift in the last few years, it was always just baseball, football, of course, boxing, UFC's big. But guys began to watch, and believe me, I'm not a fan, so, you know, I'm just going to give you the facts. But there be, the American, even prisoners, began to look at soccer, which is now called football. And it's becoming a kind of a way to hear that people really watch um, what I call soccer. And that's become very popular, but still, in terms of king uh the nfl and the nba are probably the biggest sports in here but for me personally it's it's more boxing ufc type of stuff that i like more than anything else interesting is that kind of the the you know latino like the hispanic guys that are into soccer more or just everybody no no you'd be surprised it's mostly uh it's, it's a lot of white guys that are like, I don't know why it is, but this changed. Before, when I was a kid, soccer was like, nah, we're not going to play that. But now it's become pretty popular because of the globalization of the sports. Uh, but for me, as I said, 
I like watching boxing and fighting. It's just, I don't know, it's more one-on-one. It's more about one person's skill rather than a whole team. I kind of like that more. So David, uh, what does that say? Burlington, Vermont. This might kind of put you on the spot, but he wants to know if a lot of inmates like have tattoos more so than your average person. And if you've ever seen like a, like a weird or you know kind of scary or just bizarre or just bad tattoo of some kind that, that stuck out to you. Well, yeah, the answer is that 20, 30 years ago, um, the population in prison, the majority have tattoos, prison-made tattoos. Yeah, some of them are freaking horrible. Some are pretty good. This, I've met a lot of guys that do good work, single needle work, if if um, he knows what I'm talking about. Um, now in tattoos on the streets, they have several heads and several needles working at the same time, but the single needle tattoo is the most king in prison. Um, but in the last few years, like I say last eight years, tattoos on the streets have become a lot more popular. You have lawyers, you have doctors have them, women have them, they're sleeved. It's not that weird anymore. And there's a there's a big population out there that like the prison look, the black and white, gray, single needle tattoos have become very popular out there. So, you know, as much as I guess one mirrors the other one, society out there is mirroring the one in here now. Tattoos are very popular out there, and in here, they're still popular. It's just something that you never used to see before, but as I know, I watch television, I see people are completely sleeved, and, well, they're nerds, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still I'm still shopping around for my face tattoo. I want to make sure I get something that's exactly what I want, so... Until then, I, I'm uh, completely free of ink. I, I don't know. I try and avoid needles whenever well, possible. You know, yeah, it's actually kind of funny you say that because one of the guys that, I'm, that works out very close to me, his whole face is tattooed. And I personally don't have tattoos. It's just not something that I, I don't want to have sleeves. And mostly because I haven't found anybody that does work. Well, I mean... They can draw as well as I can, so I'm not going to get some garbage put in my arms. But, um, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's almost funny to think about these guys that have these tattoos in their face. How do you get a job? I mean, even in prison, people look at you like, what the hell were you thinking when you did that? <laughs> but, hey, so everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got the right to do what they want. But to answer his question, it's almost even now. People in the street and people in here... They all got tattoos. Hell, cops come in this place now with neck tattoos and face tattoos. I just had a bunch of rookies come in the last class, which was about four months ago, and like four of them had tattoos on their face. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, I think that's part of the whole militarization of cops that we've seen escalating in this country is, uh, yeah, they. I mean, they're trying to look scary with the neck tattoos and the, you know, the big barbed wire sleeves, and it's like... Uh, yeah, I don't think you're supposed to be scaring the people that you're protecting, actually, uh, with yeah, this I've macho... Never, I've never thought... Yeah, no, no, you're right. I just never thought that... I've never been scared by a tattoo, by the way. No, I mean, I've never seen guys tattoos say, shit, I'm not going to fight this guy, he has tattoos. <laughs> it's just, that's... I mean, I, I don't know, I get it that some guys like them and they can look a certain way. I'm not impressed. No, me either. And, and I also don't appreciate the... Uh, what are you looking at? 
type of it's like well i'm looking at your freakish fake your face tattoos is what i obviously you wanted someone to look at them i'm assuming it, it's got to be part of the motivation for having them but uh thank you for that let's move on to uh kevin cooper he is he's gotten a lot of media attention uh, in recent months and years uh kim kardashian you know has kind of made this her pet project he's a african-american black guy from pittsburgh and a lot of people think that he is innocent so he's been kind of a cause celeb on this topic uh especially recently so he has a i mean we'll just start from the beginning just like everyone else we've talked about he has a pretty bad start to life he's abandoned given up to uh foster parents at uh two months and have 60 seconds remaining given up to foster parents at two months and uh and abused so that's where everything kicks off for him unfortunately so um i guess we'll get into that when you call back all right now we're after we're back after our 15 minute hiatus here yeah so yeah, we were talking about Kevin Cooper, and I think it's important that the audience know that he wasn't born Kevin Cooper. He was actually born Richard Goodman. And as you mentioned, he's born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on January the 8th, 1958. And his mother, after he was only six months old, gave him up for adoption, and he was adopted by a couple, the Coopers actually, who named him Kevin, and of course gave him their last name, Cooper. Um, and, you know, you always would think that if someone's adopting a child, that child's going to have a great life and grow up to be a good person. Unfortunately, things uh, really didn't go that well. And this is kind of a theme that you and I have gone through now. We, it, we're, we're, we're yet to find a person that, well, basically, you know, had a lot of money, had horses, has swimming pools, tennis courts, went to private schools. And ended up in prison. That's just, it's rare. I'm sure it has happened, but it doesn't happen. And this is, this case is no different because, um, you know, by the age of seven, he is being abused so severely. I mean, think about this. He's a seven-year-old little boy, and he begins to run away from home because the abuse is so bad at that house. I mean, that's, that's pretty terrible if you think about that. Because for a child to leave a household at that age, it just doesn't really happen. I mean, where does he go? What does he get? How does he eat? Yeah, yeah. And just, you know, knowing that you can't really accomplish much at that age, you just don't know enough about the world. It's pretty it's pretty sad, actually, because his, he's trying to escape and really has no no chance of actually escaping. Yeah, and that seems to carry over. Um into his adult life, but as a teenager, you know, he's routinely breaking into homes and burglarizing them. And I believe that as a seven-year-old boy, I think, you know, and this, I'm, this is pure speculation on my part, but, you know, as, as children are very young, they run away from home, uh, they need someone to stay, and most of the time they find an abandoned house, they go into that house. It becomes a learned behavior. Um, and as a teenager, he kind of, in that learned behavior, begins to break into homes and burglarize them. Um, it doesn't go well for him. He, he seems to be a, a a burglar, but he doesn't seem to be very good at it because um, 
1977, you know, he's arrested, he's a teenager, and he's sentenced to one to two years for burglary. Now, during this burglary, he even stipulated, at least with the court case and the court document state, that he stipulated to um, kidnapping and the rape of a minor who interrupted him during this burglary. Um, he does his one or two years, and between the 1977 time when he gets released and the 1982, he is convicted twice more for burglary. Uh, but he also escapes from different institutions 11 times. That's a big number. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive, actually. Um, and, I mean, later we'll see that he ends up escaping from this mental institution. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's as simple as, as climbing a fence or, or, you know, cutting a hole in a fence or what, but... Yeah, he's he's pretty industrious well, to be doing it to get away with it that many times. Well, you also have to understand that when you go to prison or jail for burglary, you're usually considered a minimum security person. At a minimum security institution or even a psychiatric ward, all there is is a six foot fence. There's no electrical fence. There's not gun towers. They're not really. They figure if you're doing six months to a year. And you want to escape and pack another three to five years to your sentence, hey, be our guest. So I think that's how this begins to happen. And during his, one of his last escapes in Pittsburgh, um, he leaves. He, he doesn't stick around, and he ends up in Los Angeles. And he's right back in it again. And, and let, me, let me just say, look, he's a burglar. You know, this is his uh, method of operation. He he sticks to it. It's something he does and he continues to do. And sure enough, he's caught in Los Angeles. Uh, he's convicted of two more burglaries. And he's sent to prison at an institution in California for four-year term. Now, the interesting part in this is that had the authorities known of his 11 escapes and his priors of burglary, he would have had a lot more time tacked on to him. Had he been convicted for, of two burglaries, as he did in California, the four-year term would not have been uh, the sentence given to him. The reason he got that sentence is because they believed that he was a first-time offender. Why do you ask? Well, he had identification that he got in California that said his name was David Trout, another AKA. So and we have to remember, Look, this is prior to the internet. This is prior to all this stuff where you can, in one second, they can run it through a computer system and prints will come up and you'll know who the guy is. In this day and age, 1982, 83, you're basically left with law enforcement looking at a card and comparing fingerprints, which is very time. And there's no way they would have figured this guy came from Pittsburgh. Yeah, so, and there was no, I mean, even if he was in Pennsylvania, like, yeah, they, they might be able to find it, but there was no centralized uh, system at that point, so. Um, yeah, and of course, he's put in a prison, and as I mentioned, it's a minimum security prison. It's actually, it's called CIM, California Institute for Men. This prison is so... Uh, 
low-grade level one for just guys doing six months, a year, nonviolent crimes, that there really is no fence there. You can literally just walk out of this place. And the, 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 the funny part is in those days, that prison was not considered a prison. Uh, prisoners and, and, and well, guards, they were considered counselors. And you wouldn't call them guard or boss. It was very nonchalant. You wore your personal clothes in there. It was like a real rehabilitated type of place where they were really testing what rehabilitation could give and or what could it, it change in a person's life. But he was only there a couple of days in his case he needed to be. And that, the, the date there is June the 2nd, 1983. So, you know, this is like, the, the, if you can find a bad move in someone's life, that was the worst move because after escaping, he finds, and here we go again, a house that's, it's not deserted, the people are not there, it's vacated for a while, it's at least home, and he goes into it. And he stays in his home for two days. And the records show that he made several telephone calls from that home to friends asking them for money in order to assist in his escape. Now, I want the audience to really pay attention to what I'm just saying here, because this piece of evidence, in my opinion, is critical. So keep in mind that he's in another home, he's by himself, he's making phone calls, and he's asking for money because he doesn't have any, and he needs it to be able to continue in his, you know, his escape, to get away, and get further away. So, and we will return to that, of course. Yeah, so he's, he's squatting in this house that is, uh, it's only 125 yards from what is going to be a pretty brutal murder scene, right? Yeah, and then as I said, that escape was just, I mean, I know if he can go back in time, he would stay in prison the rest of the time that he had. Because, so according to records, or according to Kevin, on June the 4th, two days after he's in his home where he's, as you said, squatting, he's hiding out, he leaves and he hitchhikes to the Mexican border where he befriends a couple who own a large sailboat and well, they hire him as a crew member. And, um, of course, <laughs> this is where things go really bad. The following day on June the 5th, and again, according to Kevin and he's not even in the vicinity anymore. He's now on board a sailboat with this couple, but and that, that would be kind of interesting, right? Matt, I mean, this couple that hired him, um, I mean, I think it would be very important to interview them and ask them, hey, what was the date that you hired this guy to work for you? And maybe they don't know. Maybe they, you know, hey, we're with us. he was with us for several months. I don't remember the exact date. It was around about the 3rd to the 5th. So maybe that's what the answer is, right? Yeah. Yeah, you would think you'd want to know, but especially because these people um, describe his behavior later as being very suspicious. I mean, you know, he's in Tijuana and whenever they stop uh, and get off the boat, like in Santa Barbara, he, he hides in the boat. Um, 
So it's not hard to put two and two together that maybe this guy's on the lam or something, right? Yeah, but that's always interesting, right? We, we, you know, after the fact, you know, you, you, you play Monday night quarterback or Monday morning quarterback, and you're, you're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, he did all these things that were suspicious. Well, my question is, then why the hell didn't you do something about it? You check with the police, you hire somebody, but no one seems to do this stuff. It's always after that they know all the facts. Then they start making conclusions like, oh, yeah, we saw this. And and that's just human nature. People do that because they want to feel like they were on top of everything. But as I was mentioning, on June 5th, 1983, Bill Hughes comes over to the Ryan home to pick up his son, Christopher, where he spent the night. And... um, he knocks on the door. Spent the night with the, with no the, with uh, a, another kid who's his his friend, his same age. Sleepover. Yeah, he's sleeping over at the at the, um, at the home of the Ryan home. And so Bill Hughes, I mean, he, his son's there, so he knocks on the door. And no one answers. Then he looks into the house and makes the discovery that something horrible has happened. Uh, through the window, he sees the bodies of Douglas and Peggy Ryan. He enters the home and finds their 10-year-old daughter, Jessica, and his own son murdered. Now, you know, I mean, that in itself would just, it, it's horrible. However, he finds Josh Ryan, who's eight years old, and he is the son of uh, Douglas and Peggy Ryan, as well as Jessica's little brother, that he has survived. His throat is completely cut. He was left for dead, but he's clinging to life. I mean, man, I can only imagine what Mr. Hughes felt that day, finding his child, you know, just basically hacked to death because the murders were brutal. This was not a clean scene. And look, murder's never clean. It's, It's always but this particular crime scene was bad. The bodies were hacked with a hatchet. Uh, A knife was used, an ice pick. It was just really a bad scene. And, you know, I can only just imagine the the emotional uh, moment that Mr. Hughes had finding his child murdered. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's I, I can't even put myself in that position. I mean, there's a, I'm just picturing these people hacked up, you know, there was a hatchet, there's an ice pick involved. So a few directions we can go here, but this was not a, a robbery. This was not a burglary. This was a, just some kind of execution is what it was. That's exactly my point. And, when we come back, because my 15 minutes are up, I'm going to have to touch on something that I want the audience to pay attention to, which is important. And I, you and I say, we're not here to prove anybody innocent or guilty. We just want to lay the facts down and show them as they are for the audience. And I'll be back. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Okay, Matt. Yeah, so you were saying, uh, you were saying something. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's noteworthy to mention that, well, you, you touched on it. This is an execution. 
everybody in the family and everybody in the house, they attempted to kill us. They killed most except for one child, but it was an execution. There was a purse in plain sight. There were other valuables there, including cash right there in front of everything. Nothing was taken. Um, you know, we know that Kevin Cooper is a burglar, and we also know that he was looking for money. He was, uh, he called his friends asking for money to assist him to get away from the area. Well, if he is hiding out in his house and he's looking for money, I, this is the perfect opportunity to steal money, not to go in there and slaughter the whole family. I mean, what does he gain from that? So that is important for us to keep in mind that. There, it wasn't, they didn't ransack the place and steal property. There was no other motive but to just kill them. And there's money in plain sight, yet the money is still there. However, the family station wagon is taken and is later found in Long Beach, California. So, I mean, that's, if I'm a lead detective, the first thing I'm looking at is motive. Why would this be done? My first question is, was anything taken? And there was nothing taken in the house that would assist him, or at least, you know, I'm thinking about Kevin Cooper because obviously the police and the sheriff made immediate jumps of conclusion that this is our killer. And anytime that someone does something like that, they usually have to back it up because if they don't, then it looks like a lot of pressure, a who did it, what's going on, is our community safe? a lot of things going on there that need to be satisfied and that sheriff made a huge jump to conclusions that this guy's our guy and he really had no evidence because um, the only survivor, the only eyewitness to everything was Josh Ryan and the, 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 the little boy when he was interviewed by social workers and law enforcement when they asked him what happened he gave a pretty detailed description that he heard a scream. They looked, him and um, the little girl looked. There was something going on in a house. He described three white men, three or four white men, killing his family. And that's what he said. Three or four white men killed my family. Um, Christopher, the little boy that was with him, ran back into the room and obviously they, well, they hunted him down. He heard him scream. And then he felt something sharp to the back of his head. And then he lost consciousness and woke up in a puddle of blood. Now, those are his exact words. Now, his story did change. His story did change. He then said it was three Mexican people. But it's interesting that this is going on because... Nowhere does that theory stay with one person. But the sheriff jumped immediately to one person did it, Kevin Cooper did it. But yet the only witness is saying it's three people. So yeah. I, I don't understand how they, I mean, if I witness a robbery and I said, hey, four giants that were seven feet or bigger with basketball uniforms did it, you're not going to look for the, you know, uh, little people from 
you know, the TV show Midgets, it just makes no sense why they would make that jump. Yeah. And that and immediately raises eyebrows. Yeah, there's a lot of really shady police work and detective work involved here. Um, but even if we throw out, you know, the testimony, the, the memory of the little boy, um, it's probably impossible for one person to have killed, you know, all these people like the Douglas Ryan, the one of the men who was the man who was killed, the, the man of the house he was like an ex Marine. You know, he, he kept a gun in his nightstand or, or somewhere in that proximity. He was a big guy. Uh, I don't know that one guy would be capable of killing these three, uh, people um and then if you factor in the testimony or the you know the the eyewitness report from from the boy you know he describes three um white or mexican people and kevin cooper is uh i'd I'd say a, a very dark complexion you know he's not mistakable for uh for those people well you're absolutely right but Look, let me just let me interject here and say this: as um, a person who was involved in, you know, professional fighting for a number of years, and I've trained in the martial arts since I was four years old. I, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I think it's fair that the audience hears both sides of this. So, of course, you would think that a person, an ex-marine, a green beret, a person of my skill level in the martial arts. Oh, you could, there's not a person in the world who can walk in his house and pick this guy. I beg to differ, and I'll, and I'll explain why. If one perpetrator was doing this, he would first take out the father, the, the threat. And if he has an ax in his hand, he cracks him one time in the skull, no matter how skilled that man is, no matter what his prowess is as a fighter, or just a, just a great individual, very strong, he's going to be off his game. He's asleep. He gets hit in the head. Maybe he never even woke up because there was no defensive wounds. And by the time he hits him two or three times, he's on on top of the the woman and he's hitting her with it. There's there's no there's no time for them to respond. If it was a fair fight where they saw him coming or them coming, they'd have a chance. I don't think that was the case. And then, of course, the children are not going to be a problem. So I think one man could do it very easily. I think I think it's it's highly possible. I I think it's like a a mark in it's a slight mark for his innocence because I think it's more likely that three people. Could, could do it more easily, but I, I agree. It's completely possible. I just, I think it's worth kind of mentioning, you know? No, absolutely. And, and the, the point is that the Josh Ryan, the small child, his first, um, his first description of the, of the people were three white guys. Now that's very impressionable. Um, but that's what he said. And, you know, but one person could do it, sure. You and I talk about Richard Ramirez. He walks into a house, big strapping husband. He shoots him in the head first. Now he has free reign to do what he wants to do. So uh, I think it's totally possible. However, 
the more important part is what, what Josh Ryan said, which was there was three white guys. Then they said, well, there was three Mexican. And by the time the trial happened, he had changed his testimony three or four times. But And I'm going to quote this because this, I think, is very important. So regarding Josh's testimony, we have a federal, a federal judge named Fletcher. And this is what he says about recollection, or the recollection by Josh Ryan. He says, deputies misrepresented Josh's recollection and shaped his testimony to fit the prosecution's theory that it was only one killer. Judge Fletcher goes on to say, the state of California may be about to execute an innocent man. Since that, he said that, Ten other federal judges have joined Fletcher, and five have gone on further to say Cooper has never had a fair hearing to determine his innocence. Now, that's heavy. When you have ten federal judges, it's not Matt Ralston and William Nogueira pointing out discrepancies in the case. It's not a bunch of yahoos in a bar talking. These guys, these federal judges are professional jurists that look at cases all day, and you have 10 of them saying, nah, this was a manipulation of evidence. So before we kind of get into uh, a few details on this, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, conflicted because um, at this crime scene, there was no rape of the... the woman or the uh, child or anyone, which is good. Um, but we know that before Kevin Cooper had been committing a burglary and I guess the, he came upon a, a girl and raped her. Um, now, while he's laying low on this couple's boat, he rapes a woman at knife point on the dock. And uh, so he's people that go around as serial rapists I think are really sick and twisted. That's not, uh, you know, it's not a, a high concept thing. I'm not, I'm not making any revelations here, but so I think that someone that does something like that is capable of just hacking a bunch of people up because, uh, you know, he's sadistic or whatever, you know, this is kind of evidence that that, that wasn't his motive. You know, I, I would almost think that if he had done it, he, he may have actually raped this woman. You know? Yeah, well, listen, I, look, I, I, I've been in a number of situations where men are in jail for burglary, robbery, drug use, and I've seen them kill somebody. So, in my opinion, every one of us, depending on the circumstances, can in fact kill somebody. I'm not saying for the reason of stealing something. If someone harms your child or is about to harm your child, you can kill that person to stop that. The the whole, well, he's a, a nonviolent uh, offender, and I can't see him killing. That's an amateur talking. The truth of the matter is every one of us has the ability and the means to kill. So I, I, I don't really go with that type of... Um, mindset because I've seen the opposite happen and as I've said I'm a student of human behavior I watch people for a living that's what I do 
I happen to have front seats of sitting here watching a bunch of serial killers and murders because there's 750 plus of them around me. And I watched them, I've been watching them for nearly 40 years. So that is a fact. Now, of course, you mentioned the rape. So let's inform the, the, the audience that seven weeks later after the murder, Kevin Cooper is still working as the crew member of this sailboat. And a woman from another boat went to the police to report that she had been raped at knife point. While at the police station, she sees a wanted poster with Kevin Cooper's picture, and she immediately identifies him as the man who raped her. Now, Kevin was never tried for this, for that rape or anything else, so we don't know whether it's true or not. Uh, was there a relationship there? We don't know what happened there, but that's how he basically was arrested. The, the wanted poster she saw, of course, was a wanted poster for the murders of the Ryan family and their neighbor. So here we go, from the very beginning, Ryan said, Josh Ryan says three white guys. The sheriff had... You have 60 seconds remaining. The sh you know, from the beginning, the sheriff has wanted posters for Kevin Cooper as the killer. And the case had incredible media coverage. It was in San Bernardino County. There's a lot of people there that even in those days, or probably mostly in those days, had there was some racial tension. Uh, so you can imagine the type of coverage it was getting when an African-American man is being charged with the murders of four, a, a family of four uh, white people, white uh, folks. So that was, I mean, big news. Hey, man. Yeah. So, um... I mean, just to recap, so this boy identifies three white or Mexican people, three people. And so that doesn't really match the description of Kevin Cooper, who's one person and, and he's uh, black. Uh, but, you know, we know that uh, Clarence Allen had like a posse of of uh, criminals and, and, you know, bone breakers that he hung out with. So, um you know, it, it would just make more sense that he's he's in this crew. It was a crew of people that that would be looked at. But, um, yeah, so we get to the trial, and there's this is a pretty ugly scene because there are, like, angry mobs of people, um, you know, essentially calling for a lynching of this guy. There's one of the crowd members, they're holding up a sign, uh, some slogan with the N-word in it, and they have a stuffed monkey or gorilla with a noose around its neck, and something that I noticed as I was reading through all this stuff is I never really heard that repudiated by, you know, anyone with the, the San Bernardino authorities. And I don't know if that's their their place, but you would kind of think they would have a statement of, uh, please stop with this. I don't think that ever happened. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And we have to understand the time and the place. This is 1983. Um, you know, this is 
way, way before. I mean, we also obviously had civil rights, and but in that time and age, we did not have the progressive thinking that we have now. The N-word was something that was constantly used, as were other terms to describe minorities, specifically Hispanics, Asian, and of course, African American. This is a time that, in, by today's standards, I would, have, I would argue that every coach in the NFL would have been fired if you could take that mentality from the early 80s and place it in 2021. Because those words were always being used by people to describe it. They had a stuffed gorilla with a noose around. I mean, I was, I went, I was in the county jail when some of the trial was going on, and they showed glimpses of it or clips of it, clips of it at on the news. And I saw the, you know, the the, the crowd yelling the N word when Kevin Cooper was brought in in a van. Um, during the trial, there was outbursts calling for the N-word to be lynched. Those th- that kind of society, I'm sure it exists today, but they're quiet because they know what happens nowadays if you use that type of language to describe a minority. You're going to get fired or you're going to be, I mean, how they're going to lynch you on social media because it's a, there's a different standard. Um, of how to express yourself and how to treat other people of other races. Back then, it didn't happen. And, and in, believe me, in San Bernardino County, which is a conservative county, it was fine. No one, you know, said, hey, stop doing that. That isn't what we're about. They thought that it was, hey, this is the best way to convict this guy because everybody feels this way. The jury pool was so contaminated that they moved him. They changed his venue from San Bernardino to San Diego. Unfortunately, they the trial was just a joke, to be honest with you. There were so many statements made by law enforcement that they had their guy, that it was a slam dunk case, that everybody believed it. And I'm going to be the first one to admit this. Given the fact that we're supposed to believe in law enforcement, they are there to protect and serve us. They are there to bring justice and the extension of the judicial system to society. That they were saying, we have a slam dunk case, we have evidence, we have fingerprints, we have blood, we have hair, we have analysis, we have witnesses, everything. I would even believe that he was guilty, as did that jury, and as did mostly everybody in society until the tables were laid even. And what I mean by that is that Kevin Cooper was not given a fair trial. The amount of dishonesty in evidence collection, look, if one cop does something wrong, and you catch him at doing something wrong, to tamper with evidence or to plant evidence, you have to. You then have to take everything that is being collected as being tainted. Fruit of a poisonous tree. 
if one guy's crooked, they're all crooked. You can't trust one cop. You can't trust none of them in that particular investigation. And in my opinion, whether he's guilty or innocent, the fact that the law enforcement in this case took that position and cheated is enough for reasonable doubt. Yeah, I mean, I mean you I almost... How you feel about it. Even if he did it, you you have to throw out the conviction if they are tampering with and manufacturing evidence because we just can't allow that. Um, and, and, you know, as a defense lawyer, you never want to be in the position of claiming a conspiracy, right? But the, right. the fact is that I don't, I don't know why that's such a bad defense because we know that cops plant and falsify evidence on a regular basis. So why are we acting as though that's out of the question? So just recently, for example, in Los Angeles, an officer with the LAPD accidentally filmed himself placing cocaine in a suspect's wallet that was on his body cam. And that was uh, a man named Ronald Shields. The, the cops... <laughs> are so cavalier with this stuff, some of them anyway, not saying all of them, you know, they're just doing it with their cameras on, not even kind of realizing what they're doing. Anyway, that's one case, and that happened recently. So to say it never happens, I think is pretty ignorant, actually. Well, it is. and But more to the point is that in today's society, look, you just brought this case of Mr. Shields being framed by the police department the LAPD. And that's one case. But there are cameras now where we can see this happening. Now, let's just imagine Mr. Shields in 1979 or 1980. And he says, hey, look, I don't use drugs. They planted it on me. Who are you going to believe? Law enforcement or this man? No. Okay, that's simple. You can, believe, you can believe the cops. So that in today's society, we see it happening. I think the first big video that happened where we caught law enforcement doing something. And still, they acquitted them. This was the Rodney King thing. They won't watch this thing on TV. They're beating this man. He's on the floor. He's obviously not a danger to me. And they are beating him to death. We see now the case in New York where the officer is convicted of putting his knee on the guy's neck, Floyd, and killing him. He was on camera. He knew he was on camera. This still happens. So my point in all this is that we know it happens. We didn't see it back in the 70s and 80s and 90s because no one had a freaking camera in their pockets because they had a phone on them. But now that we see it happening, it should make us pause when we see things happen that make no sense other than that it was planted, that it was tampered with, or that it was manufactured by law enforcement. And it's unfortunate that in this case, it took nearly 35 years for it to come to light because today's uh, technology, today's forensic um, uh, sciences can detect when something's been planted. And we're going to get into this obviously in the next episode when we start deciding the evidence and really pointing out where law enforcement was caught in the, with their hands in the cookie jar. Um, we're teasing a lot about it, but I would, I would stay tuned for the next episode because we are going to unmask a lot of evidence 
that is going to make you raise your eyebrow. And if, at the very least, it's going to make you say there's reasonable doubt, not only because of the planting the evidence to really basically frame this guy, even if he were guilty, they were trying to frame him and they used nefarious techniques to do it. But we also have another suspect who has a closer connection to the family. And you and I have really talked about this. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? That this didn't come up before. And actually, it did come up before. And that's where this whole thing begins. It never came to light at that time because the law enforcement ignored it. Yeah, and, and uh, next episode, you're going to recognize this guy from the previous episode as uh, a murderer. And uh, so we're going to get into how a lot of this evidence is tainted. But just one thing I always, I don't know if you're like me, but when I when I see evidence that's too perfect, I'm, I'm immediately suspicious. A button from his coat, you know, falls off of his coat and is found. Yeah, I guess that could happen, but we'll see that a lot of this stuff is, it's a little too perfect, and maybe I'll just leave it there. I guess that's the end of part one, unless you want to... Yeah, no, only that I'm excited about this. I, I mean, I really want to share this with the audience. I want to let them know what's going on. Um, it's just, it's mind-boggling. I, I, I can't imagine a judicial system that is based on all these rules and in this particular case, whether he's guilty or innocent, they ignored all the rules. And that's in my, in my book is called railroading. And and I know why they did it. It's simple. Had all this stuff come out during his trial, there would have been reasonable doubt. Easily. And they would have had it quick. And well, they didn't want that to happen, so we're at this crossroads 35, 36 years later, and it only gets better, ladies and gentlemen. It only gets better. Yeah, this is bizarre, and uh, we'll get into it next time. This has been Death Row Diaries. Uh, I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>